Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus upon it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. My name is Matt Skogan, or the Wolf of Wall Street, as I call myself. (laughs) Actually, uh, if you were here last time I preached, I compared myself to Macaulay Culkin. So, I'll take Leonardo DiCaprio over that. All right. Uh, Good morning. We're in uh, week three of part three of a three-part, 21-week mega-series <laughs> looking at the book, book of Luke. And all that is to say that we're, we're getting there. We're almost done. In fact, uh, today we're looking at the traditional Palm Sunday passage, which begins the last week of Jesus' life. And we're going to spend the next five weeks, the last five weeks of our series, including today, looking at the last week of Jesus' life. And today, since it's not Palm Sunday, I thought I would take a bit of a non-traditional look at this passage. And what I want to do is look at this story through the lens of one particular character in this story who I think reveals to us some important things about what this story really is. And that character is the donkey, the donkey that Jesus rides. I want to look this morning at what we can learn from the donkey that Jesus rides. But before I get into it, let's pray for a minute. Lord, I am so inadequate to be up here. I pray that you would use me in spite of who I am, that you would speak to us through me this morning, that you would be present and keep distractions away. In your holy name we pray, amen. This story in almost any Bible you'll find is called the triumphal entry. But when you read it, 
I think you discover that it's almost more like a satire of triumphal entries. We have Jesus riding into Jerusalem for his grand entrance as the Messiah, as the King of Kings. But he's riding a donkey. It's almost comical when you picture this in your head. He's coming in and the crowds are cheering, they're adoring him. But he's riding a donkey. There's a mismatch between what the crowds, how the crowds are treating him and what he actually looks like. The crowds are treating him like a general who's about to lead a revolution. And Jesus is riding a donkey. The version we just read is the NIV. That version says colt. The Greek word there, as I understand it, can either be translated young horse or young donkey, and the NIV says colt. In Matthew, there's a different word used, and there it is translated as donkey. And in John, there's still another word used, and there it's translated as young donkey. Young donkey. So most scholars think that this is actually a baby donkey that Jesus, the King of Kings, is using for his grand entrance into the capital city of Jerusalem. To be clear, there is nothing dignified, nothing kingly about a donkey. Granted, donkeys come off looking pretty good in the Bible. Obviously, as a result of this story, they're playing a pretty important role in human history. And you look elsewhere in the Bible, and they come out looking okay. In fact, in the Ten Commandments, donkeys are one of only two animals that get a shout-out in the Ten Commandments. Donkeys appear on a list of possessions that your neighbor may have that we're not supposed to covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's donkey. Fortunately for me, my neighbor doesn't even have a donkey. Ha! One less sin for me to worry about. (laughs) But even in the Bible, where donkeys come off looking okay, even there, God seems to use donkeys as a bit of comic relief sometimes. Coming in at number two on Listserv's top ten list of the most bizarre Bible stories is the story of Balaam and his talking donkey. And you may remember this story. To me, the funniest part about that story isn't just that Balaam's donkey talks. It's that Balaam talks back to his donkey. He he actually gets into an argument with his donkey. It's comic relief. And it's there as basically a source of comic relief that donkeys have stubbornly found their way into pop culture. Let's take a quick look at how donkeys are viewed in pop culture. There's Sancho Panza. This is Don Quixote's pot-bellied sidekick in the famous novel. He rides a donkey. He's the comic relief. Maybe you've seen the Shrek movies. (laughs) Eddie Murphy voices the donkey character who's the slapstick comedy in those movies. We even have games that make fun of donkeys. There's pin your tail on the donkey. Pin the tail on the donkey. Pin your tail might be fun, too. There's pin pin the tail on the donkey. Uh, There's the video game Donkey Kong, which actually is a game about a giant ape, but the Japanese creator of the game said he decided to name the ape Donkey Kong because he thought the word donkey in English would convey stupid and goofy. And then there's this game, which you may not even be aware of, uh, unless you happen to see this article in the New York Times sports section a few years ago. But apparently, in some parts of our wonderfully diverse country, there's a semi-popular game called Donkey Basketball. I don't know. It might be awesome. I've never been to a game. It's basically a game that makes fun of how slow and stubborn donkeys are. We're looking into playing this at the church retreat next year. (laughs) But that's what donkeys are. They are slow, stubborn, awkward, not very attractive, and, well, not very intelligent animals. And it's this that Jesus chooses to use as his steed for his grand entrance into the city of Jerusalem. 
The crowds are giving him a royal welcome. They're treating him like the king they wanted him to be, which of course was a political king, a military king, somebody who would overthrow the Roman occupation. And while there is genuine celebration of Jesus going on here, you also get the sense reading it that Jesus is almost using this scene to make a mockery of human celebrity. Just a few days after this, Jesus will once again be surrounded by crowds. But this time, instead of, blessed be the king, they'll be shouting, crucify him. And even here in this story, while the people are rejoicing, the Savior is weeping. He's crying over his creation. He's crying over the fact that his people still don't recognize who he is. We still don't recognize what will bring us peace. This so-called triumphal entry... I think is actually a rich parable that illustrates the ongoing mismatch between what we think we want and what God knows we actually need. What we think we want is almost always shallow and short-sighted, and we come to God hoping he'll solve our immediate problems, and instead he goes straight to the root of the issue. And as a result, I think a lot of what we see God doing, especially in the short run, is confusing and it doesn't make sense like choosing to ride in on a little donkey. So this morning I want to look at three things that we can learn about the kingship of Jesus from the donkey. And the first is that Jesus wants to be viewed as a king. In fact, he demands that we view him as the king. But second, the donkey shows us that he's not the kind of king we wanted or expected. And third, the donkey is going to show us that Jesus can ride us without breaking us. And that may be the most interesting, but you're going to have to wait for that point. The first thing we see that's kingly about this scene is simply the fact that Jesus is choosing to ride into the city. You wouldn't have ridden into a city like this unless you were some kind of royal emissary. Kings would ride into a city for their coronation. A general would ride into a city after a great battle. Or a ruler would ride into a city in order to take it over. So when Jesus decides to ride into the city, he's making a statement about his own royalty. And the people get it. They get it right away. You see them putting their cloaks on the ground. That's their equivalent of rolling out the red carpet. And notice what they're saying. They're treating him like royalty, but not just any royalty. They're singing Psalm 118, which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Except they've changed the words. And they're saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're talking about the king, the one true king, the final king of the world who is coming to set everything right, the Messiah. And they're saying, we found him. It's this guy on the donkey. And that claim, of course, infuriates the Pharisees. And we have this interesting interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees that actually only occurs in Luke's account of this story. The Pharisees can't believe what the crowds are doing. They can't believe who they're claiming Jesus to be. And even more so, they can't believe that Jesus is letting all of this stand unchallenged. And when they confront Jesus about it, Jesus says it's not going to do any good to shut them up. Because if they don't say it, the stones themselves will cry out. He's saying there's, there's not going to be any, it's, it's, you're not going to be quiet today. Not today. This day had long been prophesied about. This day had long been predicted. In fact, the prophet prophet Zechariah had specifically predicted this moment centuries before that the king would come like this, gentle, and riding on a donkey. So by fulfilling that prophecy, Jesus is boldly saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for. I'm the Messiah. And to me, there's 
There's one thing in particular that's really intriguing about this story, and I'll be careful with my words here, but Jesus is in complete control like he always is. To me, there's one thing that's really intriguing about this story. Jesus is personally arranging this scene. He's personally orchestrating this scene so as to make a bold and loud and disruptive declaration of his kingship. He is. Remember, the gospel writers are very concise writers. They don't spend a lot of time on detail. But here in this story, Luke spends seven verses telling us how Jesus orchestrates this triumphal entry. First, he sends his disciples to go get a donkey. And where he sends them to get this donkey is not insignificant. He sends them into these two villages, Bethany and Bethphage. And these are two villages where Jesus had spent a lot of time. In fact, some of Jesus' best friends lived in these villages, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So the people in these villages were very familiar with Jesus. They had seen his teachings, they'd seen his miracles, they'd seen his full power and glory. They had even seen the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So this is a friendly crowd, this is his hometown crowd. And he sends these two disciples into this area to get a donkey. And he knows, I think, that when these two guys go into the village and start untying someone's donkey, somebody's going to say, what are you doing with my donkey? And Jesus says, when that happens, make sure you tell them that the Lord needs it. Make sure you tell them that you're getting this donkey from me. And I think what's implied there is, and you're going to want to see this. You're going to want to see this. In essence, I think what's happening is Jesus is not just sending his disciples to get a donkey. He's sending them to get an excited crowd. It's actually genius marketing, long before anybody knew what marketing was. What better way to make a splashy announcement, to create a buzz, than to have an excited crowd around you? This is what politicians do all the time. And businesses do it too. In fact, there's even a website, it cracks me up, there's a website that's built a business around doing this for you. It's called crowdsondemand.com. And if you need a crowd for any reason, you can go to this website. If you're opening a new store and you want it to look crowded, if you're launching a product and you want to have a line out the door, you can go to this website and they hire actors to create a crowd for you. That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not hiring actors. These are actually genuine supporters of his. But he is going out of his way to create a scene that's bold and disruptive in order to, to, to declare his kingship. I think, you know, our society likes a reluctant leader. And in the Hollywood version of this story, the crowd sort of just come out of nowhere. And Jesus responds with a kind of, aw shucks, I'm speechless attitude. And that's not what's going on here. Jesus is, is boldly proclaiming himself to be the king. And part of why he's doing it this way is he wants to force the leaders of Jerusalem to directly confront the claims of his kingship. See, the, the, the Roman authorities could not have looked at this scene. They could not have looked at this scene of a, of a crowd declaring a new king of Jerusalem and just said, huh, what an interesting man. What a good teacher. No way. It's far too confrontational for that. And Jesus knows that he is making a claim so big that there's only two possible responses. The authorities of Jerusalem either have to crown him as their king or they have to kill him. There's only two possible responses. And by the way, Jesus is forcing you and me to make that same decision today. We cannot read the Gospels and come away saying, he's what an interesting teacher. What a good man. He's far too confrontational for that. Good teachers do not make the kind of claims about themselves that Jesus makes about himself. Jesus doesn't say, I've come to teach you about truth. 
He says, I am truth. Jesus doesn't say, I've come to teach you about life. He says, I am life. He says, the only way to get to God is through me. And now here he is, marching into the capital city of Jerusalem and boldly proclaiming himself to be the ultimate king of the world. Now the disciples had been wanting him to declare this, his kingship in this way for a long time. In fact, for some time, they've been saying, you're the Messiah, aren't you? And he responds with these sort of cryptic responses that don't make any sense. He says things like, yes, but don't tell anybody about it. Or, yes, but I'm going to have to suffer and die. And the disciples don't know what to make of that. So finally, Jesus is beginning to openly declare himself king, and they're thinking, okay, this is more like it. But they're soon going to realize that he's not the kind of king they wanted or expected. And that's our second point. When Jesus would have told his disciples that he's going to ride into Jerusalem, they would have known what that meant. And they would have been excited. Probably a little scared too, but they would have been excited. They'd seen his miracles. They'd heard his teachings. They know nobody can do the kind of things Jesus was doing. Nobody can talk the way he's doing. Talk the way he's talking. And finally, finally we're going to make it known that we're here to rule. Finally we're going to knock some heads. Finally we're going to let everybody know that we're in charge. And then Jesus says to them, I'm going to ride and this is my steed. This little donkey that you got for me. And you can imagine the disciples looking at, looking at each other and saying, Boss, this is going to look like a joke. I mean, we need an image consultant. I mean, you, this is going to look so silly, you'd be better off walking. See, great kings or generals or somebody who's going to lead a revolution would ride in on a war horse or in a giant golden chariot. In fact, Julius Caesar, when he made his entry into Rome, rode in on a giant chariot pulled by 40 elephants. And here's Jesus, the King of Kings, the Messiah, and he's riding into Jerusalem for his grand entrance on an untamed baby donkey. It's not at all kingly. Servants rode donkeys, not kings. And what Jesus is doing is deliberately sending a message that's deeply ironic and deeply paradoxical. He is deliberately sending mixed messages about himself. He's saying, I am the final king of the world, but I'm also a servant. Strength and weakness combined, power and vulnerability combined, majesty and meekness, absolute sovereignty but perfect submission. He's a lion and a lamb at the same time. And exemplified in that picture, this contradictory king, we have an incredibly powerful and succinct summary of the entire gospel message. We do. Jesus, a king on a donkey, illustrates the whole gospel in a nutshell. You see, sin was us putting ourselves in the place of the king. And in order to set it right, the king had to put himself in the place of the servant. Sin was us putting ourselves in the place of the king, and salvation came from the king putting himself in the place of a servant on a donkey. See, Jesus is a king, all right, and he is coming to set everything right, which is what they wanted him to do. But he's not going to do it by taking power and killing. He's going to do it by losing power and dying. Jesus is the divine, the, the divine king who is coming to set everything right, but instead of overthrowing the Roman occupation, he was going to come and set everything right with God. They wanted a king who would solve their immediate problems, their felt needs, and Jesus says, I'm not going to do that. 
Instead, I'm going to go to the root of the issue. And how often does Jesus do that with us? I think in essence what he's saying to them is, I could free you from the Roman occupation. I could solve your immediate problems, but that's not going to get to the root of the issue. What are you going to do about your guilt? What are you going to do about your shame? What are you going to do about that deep sense of loneliness, that deep sense of emptiness in your life? And Jesus says, instead of freeing you from this oppressive political power, I'm going to free you from the true oppressor. I'm going to free you from sin and death itself. But of course they don't get it. And neither do we most of the time. And as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he begins to weep. He sees the city and he begins to weep and he says, If you, even you, had known on this day what would bring you peace. And then he goes on to predict the destruction of Jerusalem that would happen just 40 years later when the impatient Jews trying to get what they wanted would revolt against Rome and they were squashed. The Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem. They burned the entire city to the ground. And Jesus envisions all of this happening and it brings him to tears. Because we're fools. We didn't recognize the time of God's coming to us, which is what he says in verse 44. But then again, of course we didn't. Because Jesus didn't match what we were looking for. He didn't match what we wanted. We expected a display of brute force, a king who would bring down the armies of heaven upon our enemies. And sure, we'll be humble after that. It's easy to be humble after you've pounded your enemies into the ground. But instead... God came to us dressed like a vagrant and riding on a borrowed burrow. And instead of pounding his enemies into the ground, he let his enemies pound him into a tree. It's going way beyond humility. It's humiliation. And humiliation isn't a path to victory. Total loss doesn't get you anywhere. Or does it? certainly not the path we expected, but over and over again, Jesus teaches that in order to be first got to put yourself last. In order to gain true riches, you've got to give away your wealth. And in order to gain eternal life, you've got to die to yourself. As far as I know, there's not a business plan on earth. There's not an organization anywhere in the world that puts loss in its mission statement. Loss is not a pathway to profit, unless, of course, you buy the gospel. Granted, one of the mantras of the modern startup world is to fail faster. And true enough, mistakes are often an inevitable path on the way to true innovation. But even there, your goal is to get through the mistake as quickly as possible so you can come out the other side. Nobody makes failing their goal. That would be ridiculous. Just as ridiculous as claiming victory through death on a cross. If you're going to win, strength and brute force are what you need. That's what the Romans used to squash the Jews. And then came the Persians. And they later beat down the Romans with strength and brute force. And then came the Byzantines. And they did the same thing to the Persians. Then Arab armies took over Jerusalem. They did the same thing. They in turn were beaten down by the more powerful Turks. Then came the Roman Catholics. They did the same thing. They commenced on the Crusades and they took over. But they in turn were beaten by the more tougher Ottomans. And the Ottomans took over Jerusalem, and they ruled Jerusalem for 400 years. But that didn't last forever either, because no human civilization ever does. All earthly displays of power and might fade away. Today there's no Roman Empire, 
Of course, there's no Persian or Byzantine Empire for that matter. The Arab world violently divides between Shiite and Sunni. The Crusades were a colossal failure, to say the least. And Ottomans? Ottomans have been reduced to a piece of living room furniture. <laughs> All earthly displays of power and might fade away. But here today, 2,000 years later, after all of these human civilizations have come and gone, we're still doing Easter. We're still doing Easter. And over the next several weeks, Christians all over the world will rejoice and sing and shout, rejoicing over the victory of weakness and the power of humiliation, acknowledging that total loss actually is the path to new life and giving thanks that resurrection defeats death every time. It's no coincidence that at the end of Scripture, that at the end of time, Scripture envisions heaven as a new Jerusalem. So Jesus will claim victory. He'll even claim victory over Jerusalem, after all these human civilizations have tried to do so. But he's not going to do it in the way we wanted or expected. It's strength through weakness. The third point, and I'll wrap up with this one, is that Jesus can ride us without breaking us. And there's a small detail in this story that we all read over without even noticing, because we're such city slickers. But if you notice in verse 30, Jesus deliberately picks a donkey that has never been ridden before. And if you know anything about animals, what happens when you get on an animal, a horse, a donkey, whatever, that's never taken a human rider? Does the animal calmly react and say, okay, human, where do you want to go? No. I'll tell you what happens based on my time as a rancher. <laughs> the, <laughs> the animal freaks out. It bucks, it jumps, it does whatever it can to get you off of it. The animal in its natural state is scared of you. Animals are scared of humans. And there's this terrible term we use, animals have to be broken before they can take a human rider. But here's Jesus and he takes this untamed, unbroken donkey, and he rides it through a screaming crowd. And the animal stays absolutely calm and fearless. Why? Did Jesus break the animal? What happened? Did he break the animal when he got in the saddle? What happens when Jesus gets into the saddle? He doesn't break it. He heals it. He heals it. He heals the animal of its fear. And that's exactly what Jesus wants to do in your life and in mine. He wants to get into the saddle of our lives. He wants to get into the driver's seat. He wants to control everything. And you and I hear that as Western, educated people, and we think, well, that sounds awful. See, he is trying to break me. He is trying to coerce me. He just wants me to get, get me to follow his set of rules. And that's not what it's about. Jesus wants his ruling power to come into you, and he wants to heal you. We've talked about this before, but you will be controlled by something. Whatever you're living for will control you, whether it's professional success, the approval of others, money, good looks, whatever you're living for will control you. Jesus is the only thing who can control you that actually has your best interest at heart. He's the only thing that will control you that actually won't destroy you. That's why Jesus says in Matthew, take my yoke, for my yoke is easy. Still a yoke, but you're going to be yoked to something, so you might as well be yoked to something that's not going to destroy you. And when Jesus gets in the saddle, we can be absolutely fearless, even though he may lead us through some scary places. Like this donkey, he may take us completely out of our comfort zone and lead us through a screaming crowd. 
But with Jesus in the saddle, we know that his goal is not to break us, it's to heal us. It's to transform us back to what we were originally designed to be. See, you and I were made with one purpose in mind, to glorify and worship and serve the one true king. And when we turned from the king, everything in our lives got messed up. And Jesus comes in, and if we let him in, he wants to set it all right. He wants to transform us back to what we were made to be. And he's doing it to us as individuals, and in fact, he's doing it on a cosmic level as well. The Bible says that someday the whole world, the whole universe, will be transformed back to perfection. By the way, by riding this untamed animal and showing that peace can exist between an untamed animal and a human, Jesus is giving us a tiny foretaste of the kind of peace that will exist in his consummated kingdom. When, as Isaiah 11 says, the wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat and the calf and the lion and the yearling all together, and a little child will lead them all. It's a remarkably beautiful picture of what God's perfect creation will look like. And when we think about it, when we overthink it, I think there's a tendency to think, poor God, he built this world and it turned against him, and now thankfully he's going to set it right. But it's still going to be sort of second best. It's not going to be as good as he wanted it to be in the first place. And I think that somehow, through the greatness of God, a world that is restored to perfection will be infinitely greater than a world that had always been perfect. See, in a world that had never been anything but perfect, there'd be no concept of bravery or courage or nobility, no concept of joy in the face of suffering or hope in the face of death. There'd be no concept of sacrifice, the cross, the resurrection, forgiveness. There's one thing about the resurrection story that's always amazed me. Jesus comes back from the dead, and he has a glorified resurrection body, which all followers of Christ will have one day. But even in his glorified resurrection body, there are still visible signs of his suffering. There are still visible scars in his new body of his suffering. C.S. Lewis says Christianity has to be true because we would never invent it this way. And he's right. If you and I were inventing a religion we would blot out all signs of suffering altogether. It'd be like a back-to-the-future religion. We'd get in our DeLorean, in our time machine, and we'd go back in time and set it so that it's as if the bad stuff never even happened, so that it's as if the evil never even took place in the, in the first place. And that's not what God does. He doesn't just get us away from our suffering and weakness. He subsumes it. He takes it up into his glory. That's the healing. That's the redeeming he wants to do when he gets into the saddle of your life. He wants to heal you from yourself. And some of us have some deep wounds and some deep scars. And the amazing thing about Jesus is he's not just going to heal you from those. He's going to take them up into his glory and somehow spin it into gold. Spin it into gold. That's why following Jesus doesn't mean we won't suffer. But it does mean when we suffer, we can look to him. We can rely on him knowing that he has suffered far more than any of us ever will because he himself has experienced total separation from God. And we can know that through his weakness and suffering, he's trying to make us like him. See, that's his ultimate goal. When he's trying to heal us, he wants to recreate his character in us. 
He wants to turn us into a paradoxical person like Jesus was. A great king who comes in on a little donkey. He wants to turn us into strong, weak people like Jesus was. And when you became a Christian, you started the process of being transformed into that kind of paradoxical person. And it's never fully complete in this life, but it's underway. See, some of us tend to love fights. Some of us are aggressive people. And others are conflict avoiders. We're humble, sensitive people. Jesus was neither because he was both. And you know what? It turns out the world needs more people like that. Most of us naturally go in one direction or the other. We're either kind, sweet, humble, sensitive people, or we're aggressive, bold, courageous, strong people. Jesus was all of those things. He was all of those things. And this paradoxical, counterintuitive king wants to make you like that. Strong, weak people. Powerful and melt-in-your-mouth sweet people. A gentle king. A great king on a little donkey. And he does it through the cross. He does it through the cross. The cross proves that we're so radically loved by Jesus in spite of our flaws. And as a result, our relationship to God is completely dependent on his record and not at all on ours. When you read the Gospels, you ought to feel completely humbled by the fact that you're so bad, Jesus had to die for you. That's humiliating. That's humbling. But you also ought to feel completely emboldened by the fact that you're so loved he was glad to do it. And when those two things come together, Jesus turns you into a person of balance. Whether you tend to be a more sensitive person or a more assertive person, he turns you into a person of balance, a strong, weak person. And it starts when we let him ride us when we let him control everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize that we cannot dabble in you. We either have to accept you as the king, or we have to utterly reject you. And I pray that you would give us the wisdom to accept you as king. I pray that you would help us wrestle with the fact that you may want to make a triumphant entry somewhere right now. Maybe into our home, our work, this church, this city, and you may want us to be a part of it. Maybe we're the donkey. Maybe you want to ride us in order to make yourself more visible, more known. Jesus, I pray you, that you would help us understand what that looks like in our daily lives. To surrender everything to you. To give you complete and utter control of our lives. What does that look like in our daily lives? Thank you, God, that your goal is not to break us, but to heal us, to redeem us. And thank you that we are actually having the life of Jesus Christ recreated in ourselves so that we too can be strong, weak people like you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.